Hello, and welcome back to Geological. I'm delighted today to be sitting down with my friend, Laura Christensen. Laura is one of those unusual kind of practitioners who drinks from a number of different wells, and more importantly, has a way of tying seemingly stray threads together. She pulls from the work of Kiku Matsumoto, the work of Master Dong, and the subtle sensing and palpation as taught by the engaging vitality folks, Chip Chase, Marguerite Dinkins, and Dan Bensky. Today, we are sitting down for a discussion about something many of us acupuncturists see on a regular basis. In fact, it's one of the biggest pains in the butt that comes into our clinic. That's right. Today, the topic is sciatica. Laura, welcome to Geological. Hi. My sciatica is perking up. Just Your sciatica is perking up. <laughs> How perfect is that? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a while back, you and I were talking uh, I think it was, you know, between one of the classes or something that we were taking together and, and somehow the discussion came to sciatica and you said something to the effect of uh, some godly unlarge number of people that you see like a quarter of your patients or something are dealing with sciatica. I think a half, a half. And I thought, well, I see a fair amount of sciatica or, you know, in my practice here, but that's a lot of sciatica. And I was thinking, Wow, you're the person to get on to the show here to uh, talk about that. Half the people, is it just that you're a specialist in this and everybody knows if you got a pain in the butt, go see Laura? Or is it something about the place where you live, the kinds of people you see? Why do you think you see so much sciatica? Well, it started a long time ago, like 15 or 20 years ago, when I didn't know everything I know now. And Apparently, I did a good job with a few people, and they told more people, and you know how that works. Yeah. I think when I first started out, you know, all I had was my essential TCM education, including a lot of local needling. So, you know, that's where we were. And I uh, always have enjoyed doing palpatory acupuncture and figured out a lot of stuff just through that on my own. So I think people tell people. I also know that my clinic is really popular with people over 60. And um, I've had other acupuncturists say, really? Because apparently other people's clinic are not populated by that group. And again, I think I just got started with people in the later stages of life and they tell each other. I also think they have more health problems and more money to spend on health problems. So they tend to be around. And a fair number of my clients are the kind of people who have never been to a doctor in their lives or who just don't trust Western medicine at all. And many of them are farming people and they really believe in natural healing methods. So I think as people age, they just have more uh, lumbar spinal pathology and lots more chronic musculoskeletal distortions from work and age. And so they have sciatica. That's how we yeah. got here. Well, where is it that you practice that you're seeing so many farmer type people? I'm in Iowa City, Iowa, which ironically is a university town of about 85,000 people. And 
There are only about 40 acupuncturists in the state, and 10 of them are in Iowa City. And I got the farming bunch of the clients. Okay. You started out, like we all start out, you know, walking through that gate of TCM and, and using that TCM thinking, often a lot of local points, that sort of thing. We're going to get into some more details about how you do this, but what I'd like to begin, where I'd like to begin is what are some things that you used to believe about treating sciatica that you don't believe anymore? Well, I would say that my initial thoughts about treating sciatica were more strongly influenced by my friends who are chiropractors than than by anything I learned in school, especially. And so I started to think about just the musculature of the, the low back. And I took an orthopedics course, actually, from Alan Marcus a long time ago. And I was just doing kind of local musculoskeletal, treat the muscle that's spastic and make it settle down kind of acupuncture which works okay. But of course, you know, there are always those few cases where you needle the low back and you end up with the person going into crisis. And that was very surprising and embarrassing to me. And I recognized that needling the structure where you believe the pathology is, is really not the best option in general, it, it took me about 10 years to finally come to believe what they told us in school in order to treat the front, treat the back, in order to treat below, treat above, etc. I just didn't believe in that. I don't know why. 5,000 years of medical history just didn't come through, but now I do. So that's, I think, okay. the biggest change. You know, it's funny you say 10 years down the road, you start to get a handle on it in a different way. And yes, we we do learn these things in school, but still, it seems we need to get a certain amount of experience under our own hands, a certain amount of experience really seeing it happen or not happen or making it worse in clinic ourselves before things really begin to gel, before some of those little axioms or little things that our teachers taught us, you know, these little one-liners that seem so simple, we come back to it later and go, Oh yeah, now I see what's going on here. It, um, I don't know. I don't know if there's a way to speed that process up or not. Well, the thing about me also is that I went to school in 1982, and I was in the fifth graduating class at the first acupuncture school in this country, and we really didn't have any textbooks. Well, Dan Bensky's book came out during our second year. But we mostly had teachers who had been trained by Dr. So, and they didn't really know this stuff either. They were trying to figure it out. And so it was also, it was only a two year program, and we had no clinical year. And so we did do clinical observations and little, you know, I was a MOXA slave for a bit, actually, with Ted Kapchuk. But nobody gave us the real wisdom of 40 years of practice. And so many of my classmates who are still in practice now, I'm sure, have developed a lot of really wonderful wisdom, as have I. And I didn't even practice acupuncture until I had been graduated for nine years. 
because I did not think that my training had properly equipped me to actually treat patients. So I, I did another career for a while, and then only because people begged me, I began doing acupuncture at that time. So, you know, it's very different from people who go to school now and have a three or four year program and so many textbooks and special special specialization in their training. So I think that made a very big difference as well. So you didn't really have clinic in the way that people have clinic today. You learned about this, you got to observe people, but in terms of doing treatments with supervision, that was not part of the curriculum when you were in school. No. Okay. There wasn't even any acupuncture licensing anywhere. There wasn't an NCAAOM exam. It was the wilderness. It was the wilderness. Okay. So you and, and, and the people, you know, of your, uh, let's say generation, you know, um, generation of, of, of acupuncturists in this country, a lot of what you had to learn, you learned it in clinic. So, but we're going to get into some more details here in a moment, but especially for those people that might be new to acupuncture, or even those of us that have been in practice for a while. Can you give us a little insight or some of your thoughts on just how we can pay attention to our clinical experience in such a way that, that we can really know what's helpful and harvest that, and we can really know what's not helpful, ideally early on, and how to pivot from that into something that's more helpful. How, in other words, how do we learn from our own experience? Well, I think that the biggest problem that a lot of acupuncturists make is that they cling to theory and ignore the obvious. And so, as you and I have discussed many times, we have so much theory and we have so many different ways to look at any particular scenario, and we can really wrap ourselves up in knots thinking about how to describe this problem and strategizing a treatment that would please our supervisor and clinic and all of that. But what we tend to not pay attention to is, is our palpatory findings and sometimes even the report of the patient. Sometimes we don't do a good job of interviewing patients. And so we, I think it's easy for us to get stuck in theory and not stay in touch with the present. And so I think another little confusion is that to treat problems that are musculoskeletal, one really must be doing meridian-based acupuncture. And we need to kind of set aside the whole liver deficient blood kind of TCM idea because it's not necessarily going to lead us to the best treatment outcome for those cases. Did that answer your question? Well, I, it helps. Oh, you said, what do we need to say? So the other thing is that I started feeling around on people's bodies very early on. I had been trained by Kiko Matsumoto in my second year of acupuncture school, and she was fairly new in this country. And she taught us some things that she doesn't teach anymore, but for sure she taught us to feel around on the body. And she taught us this idea that an acupuncture point is not in a fixed location, that the points move around and that they show up where they show up on this day, and it may not be in that location tomorrow. And so there was, right from the beginning of my education, 
an emphasis on learning to feel where points are with my fingers. And I had been trained as a cellist, and I think that I had a high degree of palpatory sensitivity from that as well. So it always appealed to me to do palpation. So I always enjoyed feeling around on people's low backs and their glutes to see what's going on and where is the pain. And if I push on this thing, you know, does it make that other thing better? So I was kind of already in that exploration. And when I came back, well, after about, well, 10, 12 years of practice, I stumbled into a seminar with Kiko Matsumoto again. And when I watched the way that she worked, I said, this is the thing. I got to learn this stuff because she has such an accurate way of evaluating not only the musculoskeletal disturbance, but the whole clinical picture based on abdominal palpation and the evaluation of specific distal reflexes. All right. How about reground this a little bit in something sort of clinical? So let's say someone comes in, they've got... They come in there and they got a bit of a limp. It looks like the limp is on the right side. They come in, they report, you know, whatever they report. How would you begin to do your actual assessment and figure out for yourself beyond what the patient has to say about this? What would you do? I mean, how, what are you feeling for? Where do you feel? What kinds of what kinds of things are you looking for? How do you make sense with your hands? Well, I'm actually. I'm a very lazy acupuncturist. Well, anybody who treats a large number of patients has to find efficient mm -hmm. ways to get things done, right? So I resort to two or three basic evaluations that I tend to repeat. And it's not only for sciatica patients, it's for all patients with any pain. So now, that patient who appears to be limping on the right, I don't assume that their problem is on the right, first of all, um, because the palpatory findings may not match the, the way the patient's behaving. But I do a very simple pelvic analysis where I have the patient lying supine, and I palpate the ASIS bilaterally. And then I palpate at about gallbladder 26 bilaterally. Mm -hmm. And so the ASIS, you can either paint, palpate right on the very tip of the bone, or you can go around to the inside surface where you're actually pressing on the iliacus. And I'll compare right and left, first touching the most external protuberance of the ASIS. Because people, if you reach in and, and palpate and palpate an iliacus on somebody you've never met before, it's a little touchy. Yeah, it, yeah that gets a little intimate, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, so I'll say, yeah. I'm going to just test your pelvis here. And first I test the very tip of the ASIS and then compare right and left. And then I move. Then I say to the patient, now I'm going to move to the inside and I just palpate on the inside surface of that ASIS. And I'm expecting one side to be more tender than the other. And in about 97% of cases, that's true. And I note that I have a little sketch of the thorax on every treatment notes page, and I mark where I find tenderness. Then I move to gallbladder 26-ish, 
And I do the same thing. I press in and ask the patient which side is more tender, right or left. Now, on the gallbladder 26 exam, I can also feel very clearly that one side is usually more resistant Mm. to my palpation than the other. So most often, the gallbladder 26 tenderness is opposite the ASIS tenderness. And so this tells me that there's what I call a pelvic torsion. And that means that on the side where the ASIS is tender, the quadratus lumborum and psoas are short. And so when the QL and psoas are short, it ratchets up the back of the of the pelvis and moves it closer to the lowest rib on that side. On the opposite side where gallbladder 26 is tight or tender, that system is just responding to what the other side did. So we have this twisted pelvis and the chiropractors test this all the time. And what they measure is leg length. So they have the patient usually lying prone and they will look at which heel is more extended than the other. Mm-hmm. And the, the more extended leg would be on the side where the QL is short for, for a, an a anatomical reason that I can't at the moment explain. <laughs> so that's my first test on everybody, even if it's carpal tunnel syndrome, migraine, neck pain, ankle sprain, it doesn't matter because if the pelvis is in this distorted presentation, we do not have a good flow of meridians from the feet to the head and the hands. And this is all about the daimai. And if so, you can think about the daimai as this sort of connector, like around a sheaf of wheat, where if that loop is crooked, you're going to see all the sheaths, the the wheat straws be kind of cockeyed. Mm -hmm. So we want to get that daimai as well organized as possible. Now, I have to say, there are a couple of cases that tend to be a little bit difficult. And one is where people's pain and tenderness on the pelvic exam, if it's exactly bilaterally symmetrical, those patients are very difficult to help. It's almost as if their body needs to remember how to move. They're very static. But in the majority of patients, we're going to have this asymmetrical presentation. And I actually think an asymmetrical presentation in the pelvis is normal. I think that it is part of how nature gives us the inertia to move and walk. This very small pelvic twist makes us want to move, makes us want to adapt. But under situations of stress, that pelvic tension gets exacerbated, and that's when the QL gets very, very short on one side. So let's see. (laughs) I don't know where I am. (laughs) At the moment, we're at the dye my, and the dye can uh, cause all kinds of issues uh, with the other channels if things are kinked up. When you're treating, I mean, we're going to stay with sciatic here. Will you often look first to get that dimai to open up? Yes. So the way that I work on this is straight out of Kiko Matsumoto's world. 
I will usually treat kidney nine on the side where the ASIS is tender and kidney seven on the side where gallbladder 26 is tender. So one of the things that we know about this whole system is that there is a relationship between adrenal physiology or just stress and this short QL and psoas pattern. And I think in the chiropractic world, there's quite a lot of discussion about that. And of course, kidney 16 is on is kind of on the dimai. So kidney 16 is a palpatory assessment point for adrenal physiology and some chiropractic uh, thinking. So I believe that it is largely due to people's adrenal kind of overload that this QL and psoas can become short. So even just day-to-day stress when it's out of bounds will set people up for a short QL and start this whole pattern off. So there's an interaction between structure and general physiology right there. So you're really seeing these kidney points and you're seeing the adrenals in the kidneys as being sort of the root of a lot of these pelvic distortions. Yes. Well, there's another interesting problem with this, and that is that when you think about how the pelvis is working, one of the things that we must constantly do is manage the pelvis relationship to gravity, right? And so the pelvis needs to be always within a certain range level. And how do we do that? We do that first of all, with our foot strike, with the way that we hold our weight on the soles of our feet, both in standing and in walking. And so interestingly, it's the the muscles of eversion and inversion of the feet that will kind of be involved in this, right? Because inversion, it's it's the kind of the kidney bladder pair that manages that as well as the gallbladder meridian, right? So, you know, if you consider the gallbladder meridian running up and down the sides of the body and through the dimi, I think of the gallbladder meridian as like sides of the letter H and the dimi is the crossbar of the H. So dimi is really major structural facet here, but kidney and bladder meridian are acutely managing this pelvic rotation. And so if you think about the trajectory of the kidney meridian, of course, it it enters the pelvic floor right at the perineum, and then, of course, flows up in through the iliacus and the psoas. So as we use our feet to manage ourselves in gravity, that whole kidney psoas iliacus system is being uh, modulated by foot strike and is also sending information down to the foot. So there's this whole feedback mechanism. And then, of course, the bladder meridian, where people get so many symptoms in the low back, sort of ends up being the recipient of of whatever dysfunction in the kidney system is occurring. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. 
I'm curious, you're talking about inversion, eversion of the feet, the way that we hold ourselves up with our feet, the way we walk, our foot strikes, all that. Do you find that if people change the way they walk, and, and not just like change the shoes, but change how they place their feet or change, bring some attention to how they, they move their gait. Do you find that that can make a difference in, in their recovery or likewise in uh, the problem getting even worse? I, I don't think that people can change their gait. I think that the gait is so automatic and so sort of programmed, you know, the cerebellum is involved with this and the proprioceptors all over the body, particularly at the junction between the, the atlas, the C1 and the occiput, sort of the top end of this system, you know, that surface is covered with more proprioceptive uh, receptors than any other location in the body. And so I think that the foot strike pattern is very unchangeable by intention. And many, many things contribute to it. For example, injuries. If you've broken a toe, if you've sprained an ankle, if you've uh, broken a wrist, any kind of major injury will end up causing sort of permanent changes in foot strike. So I don't think that people can really change it by, by trying. And also, you know, I think that shoes are a huge issue. I had a guy come to see me with sciatica once who I knew that he walked with his feet very strongly turned out. I had known the guy for 15 years. And the last time he came to see me, he was just in terrible pain. And I treated him and he wasn't responding. And I finally looked at his shoes. And the outside of each heel was so worn down, it was unbelievable. And I said, how long have you been wearing those shoes? And he said, well, about five years, but my father-in-law wore them for 10 years before that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's just so, so much, of course, is given by the shoe. And sometimes when people start getting better, they need to buy new shoes or they need to get new foot liners or new orthotics. And so, so I don't think that trying is making a very big difference for people. But I think what we have to do is begin to kind of unravel the very automatic, stuck, rigidified me mechanisms in that whole system. And so I when we're doing acupuncture, what I think we're doing is removing layers of adaptation. You know, this what I'm talking about is adaptation. So you break, let's say you, you break a, a part of your foot at one point, or you have plantar fasciitis, then you're going to walk funny. Or those people who end up in a boot, I'm sure you've seen them. They, they've had plantar fasciitis. The doctor puts them in a boot. Now they've got that one leg. They're lifting it up and hoisting it around and clomping around with that thing, which is injuring their low back, their SI joint. And they're also getting real, their glute medius on the opposite side is getting really strong because they're picking up that leg all the time. And so, you know, that's one of those cases where the fix actually makes the problem worse. So I think we have to kind of peel away the layers of the onion in these cases. And we have to gently encourage the, the pelvis to remember how to be more vulnerable, how to be more responsive. And sometimes that means we have to work at the occipital area, sometimes the wrist. I mean, it could be almost anything, but for sure, 
We're always working on the kidney and the dye mine. So it sounds like your main thing is getting the pelvis to open up, free up, get more motion into it. And if there's more motion in it, it will self-correct because there's like room to maneuver. Yeah, that would be a fair assessment. Yeah, one of the findings in these people, if if they have a very strong um, ASIS tenderness on one side, the area that is described as the anterior border of the gastrocnemius on that same side. So way down on the leg. Yeah, I mean, it, you have to think the anterior border of the gastroc, where is that? So that is Kiko's location for kidney nine. And it is superior to the textbook location. So what I find is that in people who have a very torqued pelvis, they actually develop quite a lot of um, dense muscle tissue. The myofascial system in, in, in that kidney nine area, kind of spanning from like kidney eight up toward kidney 10 on along the gastroc, that system gets very, very dense you know, it's like a myofascial thing that has to be loosened up. And so I think that the presence of a needle in that that medial gastroc really helps sort of break up the stasis uh, in the kidney meridian there by just, you know, electrochemical and uh, mechanical means. So helping the kidney meridian function better is critical in these cases. Because it gets very stuck. You know, if you've got a tight muscle at kidney nine, you're going to have weird foot geometry as a response to that. So I'm always working on that kidney meridian for sure. You know, this is interesting. I think about uh, some of like the Dongshir acupuncture. And, you know, often they'll talk about using channels of the same name. So quite often I see people come in, they've got sciatica, it's that classic, they, it's sort of in the low back, but it, it's mostly around gallbladder 30, it goes down the side of the leg, it's clearly a Shaoyang issue. And this, is, this just seems to me like a great example of using the Shaoyin, same name, same level, to treat the Shaoyang. Right. Well, you know, in the balance method, of course, that's, that's all there. And for me... I guess I don't really think that way so much. So here's another layer of this whole conversation. When in my studies, one of the things that I have been presented with is the concept of something called Dantian weakness. And we see these patients all the time. And they, they can present with low back pain and sciatica and so on or almost anything else. But the palpatory findings in these patients is very clear. And one of them is they will have a little sort of divot at the superior edge of the umbilicus, like a little V-shaped notch pointing up into the linea alba. And it's like at CV9. Mm -hmm. And so there's this weakness at CV9. And that same patient often will have a either slight or profound weakness at CV4 and not often as much at CV6, but CV4 can be very either flaccid 
or just sort of sunken in. And so if you have this patient with this Dantian week, the thought in my mind is that the vessel that is the pelvis, that is the Dantian, is not strong enough to contain um, the energy that is the kidney, you know, Dantian Ming Men energy. And what I also have learned is that the body will do anything to protect Dantian Ming Men, right? Like this whole system that I'm talking about, kidney, is we're talking about that L2 level of the spine, which is the source of everything. And so all of these weird pelvic shifts and foot strike patterns and everything else is the way that the body has adapted to attempt to protect L2. And so the system will give up a lot to try to protect L2. So we want that L2 segment to be very strong and also able to to give, to sort of be flexible. So we have to be both strong and flexible. So, you know, the posterior of the system of this vessel L2 and the anterior of the system like CV4, that whole center is kind of the, the an axis from front to back around which the pelvis is organizing itself. Is this something that like in traditional TCM terms, you would call it kidney deficiency? Or do you see classic signs of kidney deficiency? Yeah, this is all kidney deficiency. And so when I do lum lumbar pathology treatments, I'm not just going to treat kidney nine, kidney seven on the opposite side. I almost always use kidney 16 also and kidney 27. So that I'm really supporting that whole system, which also is Chiang Mai, by the way. So I think about the relationship of Chiang Mai and Dai Mai mm -hmm. also here. Like Chiang Mai is this core that is so related to, to Ming Men. And then Dai Mai is sort of the hula hoop or the gyros, you know, it's like a gyroscope. It's that the daimai is is creating balance within which the chong mai and ming men system can be contained yeah well when i think of the chong mai i mean it's really the centralist of the central vessels yes because it's anterior to the spine hmm. and if you think about you know we we learned from in our engaging vitality course that these retro peritoneal structures, uh, you know, that's where I think of the Chiang Mai being. So as is like Chiang Mai in my mind. And then QL is more like bladder meridian because it's posterior. Mm -hmm. So you see all these balancing pairs, right? You see Chiang balancing the bladder meridian or, you know, daima, it's all like this overlapping system of layers and structures, and they all must move toward balance for the symptom of sciatica to go away.
So if all we're doing is saying, I'm going to do meridian-based acupuncture, and the pain is on the gallbladder meridian, so I'm going to do gallbladder, you know, if I were dunk style or, a, a, yeah, dunk style purist, I'd be doing like gallbladder 40, 41, 42, you know, and so that's my dime eye, you know, on the opposite side, I do my kidney points. Yeah, but I think we have to be able to palpate with our hands, the Dantian, and evaluate how it is improving. So you should see a, a change in your palpatory findings as you're doing the needles. Exactly. I think week after, well, first of all, within the course of a session, for example, that kidney nine and, and gallbladder 26 finding will reduce instantaneously. And I, when I put that kidney nine in on the side where the ASIS is tender and I repalpate the ASIS, the patient always says, wow, how did you do that? And then I go, yes. And then I do kidney seven on the opposite side. And then I repalpate gallbladder 26 and they say, wow. So the patient now, their awareness has contacted the fact that we have sort of unlocked the pelvis so that it can be, begin changing. So that's good. Yeah, they're already aware that something has shifted. You know, it's so funny. I don't know. You'll, you probably get this question too. I suspect a lot of us do. Well, patients will ask us, they'll go, well, how do I know I'm getting better? Which to me is always such a bizarre question. You're living in your body. How would you not know? But anyone who's practiced for any length of time knows that people miss all kinds of things about themselves. Well, and of course, you know, every one of us who's done acupuncture, no matter how long, has experienced the fact that patients come back for their, for their follow-ups and they say, it still hurts. And <laughs> when I'm really burnt out, I feel like all day, every day, people are telling me I haven't helped them. And so I have to actually go to the trouble to say, well, let's just go back here and see exactly what has changed mm -hmm. and ask more specific questions and say, does the pain go as far down your leg as it did before? Oh, no, it doesn't. It used to go down to my foot. Now it only goes down to my knee. Great. And how about this pain in your, in your glute? Is this still as tender as it was last week? Oh, no, actually, it's moved. So I think we have to show the patient that they're better. Because as, as we all know, even in our own bodies, it's easier to pay attention to what still hurts than to notice what's not hurting anymore. It's really hard to pay attention to something that's not present. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so the other thing is that when I do the Dantian weakness treatment, I usually use points on the side of the pelvis, like gallbladder 29 and some other things. And then when I go back and repalpate the abdomen, people will often say, Oh, that CV nine point is, doesn't seem as weak as it was before, or that CV four point feels not as loose as it was before. And, and I'm detecting very subtle changes, but I do want to see the Dantian sort of filling up and f I want to find the container more robust. Otherwise I don't think they can hold the treatment as well. Mm -hmm. So the more years I do abdominal evaluation, the more I can sense things. And oftentimes I can sense things that patients can't feel. So you probably have patients say this as well, right? Something really hurts and they say, all right, doc, load me up with needles, make this thing go away. 
we both know that overtreatment is not helpful. In fact, it can be, you know, as big a problem as, as not doing enough treatment, maybe more so. Do you find when you get this weak Dantian pattern that you want to go easier on a patient in terms of needles? You want to be more careful? You want to be more cautious about the amount of uh, stimulation you give them? Well, you know, that's a very interesting subject because I, I study, I always study at two ends of a continuum. I always study extremes. And so one of my teachers right now would say, no, 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 you can do five needles or six or eight needles in each extremity. Don't worry about it. That's one extreme. And the other extreme, you know, this is Dong style. A lot of Dong style teachers say, do overlaps. So, you know, you're going to address the problem with four or five needles in each limb, always targeting that same mirror of the problem. Those Dong style teachers might say, oh, no, you're not going to waste your client. But then our teachers in the engaging vitality world would say, you never want to use more than three needles in a treatment. Well, I don't know. Would they, would they say never use more than three? Or would they say use just the right amount? Well, they might say use just the right amount, but I know if they saw the treatments I do, they would <laughs> shake their heads. So I do think for sure that putting a lot of needles in the lumbar is going to be over-treating this type of person, especially if they have a lot of Dantian weakness, like I've been talking about. And so when I do treat the lumbar in these patients, I tend to use more tonif I use a tonifying points like gallbladder 25. And I use bladder 52 a lot on the side where the short quadratus lumborum is. And that's kind of a, a little bit of a throwback to some of Matt Callison's work. He, he puts a long needle, 75 millimeter needle in the QL, starting from gallbladder 25 and needling transversely through the QL towards L2. I used to do that a lot, and I really don't anymore. Now I just use a short needle, a 30 millimeter. And um, so I tend to do kind of two tonifying points on that on the side where the QL is tight. And then on the opposite side, which is usually the symptomatic side, not always. I use a, a series of needles just along the sacral border where the glutes attach into the sacrum. And those needles are very shallow and they're, they're transverse and they needle towards the feet. They kind of go down. So I just do a row of needles. Right, they go down in a little diagonal row. And starting, usually I start at the, at the tip of the sacrum and work my way up toward the PSIS. And so those needles tend to release the glute and the piriformis a bit. I think that that's actually not a very weakening treatment. I think it supports the kind of untwisting of the pelvis. And having gallbladder 25 in there, you know, is really nice and stabilizing to the Dantian. So yeah, I think the kidney would love that, wouldn't it? Yeah. And uh, I do a variety of different things on the back of the legs. Some days I use... Kiko's Ihikon treatment, where I do bladder 60, 58, and 39. And that's kind of an echo of the Dong style idea as well. Other times I don't put any needles in the backs of the legs. It just sort of depends. Certainly the weaker patients, I don't do as many needles. 
So I decide how many needles to use on the back depending on the patient's strength. Oh, by the way, I always treat front and back on 95% of my patients, especially with this type of problem. Of course, the other great, great, great one for any lumbar pathology is state waters. That's the governing vessel. I can never remember the numbers, 15 and 16 on the occipital protuberance north of the north of the little tip. So, so that would be something I would use pretty commonly as a support for the lumbar spine. I always want to be supporting the lumbar spine in these cases. And I don't think that that, like state waters, I don't think that overtreats people because it's so distal. Do you see distal points as being more moving or less moving? Well, I think some are really moving and some are more tonifying. So I don't know. I don't have a static idea about that. Because mm-hmm. I've often heard the idea that the more distal you go, it, it's like using a lever. It's like the longer the lever is, the more oomph that you can get out of it. Well, so, you know, of course, when we were in school, we learned that the more distal points are more cooling, right? Mm-hmm. So in that way, you might think they're stronger. But like in some of the dunk style thinking you would palpate for tenderness on a distal meridian, like bladder meridian, for example. So you're going to palpate along the bladder meridian, bladder 65, 64, 63, 62, 61, 60, mm-hmm. maybe 59. And you're going to choose the most tender point because that's sort of the live point. Is that a, a strongly moving point or not? I think of it more as a, a reflex that's active, just like when we palpate for tenderness in the ear. Mm-hmm. For sure, if I palpate a meridian and it feels dense and like there's not a lot of movement in the tissue, like I palpate kidney meridian a lot, I palpate gallbladder, I palpate triple burner a lot. And so if I find density in a myofascial zone, that to me is tissue that is not allowing chi to move well. So I'm thinking more in a mechanical sense there of disrupting stagnation by needling. So would you needle into those dense areas or would you would? Yes. As opposed to like needling somewhere else to try to get it to open, then go back and check and see how it feels. You just go right into that density. I don't think that needling along the meridian in another location usually loosens those up Mm -hmm. very much. I mean, maybe it's just not how I work, but yeah, I just, I I mean, part of me is still a, a good old orthopedic, you know, sort of trigger point acupuncturist. (laughs) Yeah, I'm blending, blending, blending. Now, there's certain points that have a tonifying property that really need to be respected, right? So I would never do aggressive needling on kidney three, for example, because that's, first of all, patients have that electric sensation that they hate. But I never want to dissipate energy in a point that already feels soft and yielding. Mm -hmm. So kidney three never gets, in my book, strong acupuncture. Let's see what other points are like that. Liver three. Again, I'm not going to dissipate that energy because that needs to be respected. So especially yin, yin meridian points, I, I think of them more as supportive. And yang meridian points, I think that they do tend to get kind of tied up in knots. You know, remember that principle that that uh, weaknesses in the yin meridians 
give way to excesses in the yang meridians. So I would tend to more dissipate excess in a yang meridian. So I'm going to palpate for density on the gallbladder and the bladder meridian. So I'd be, you know, treating the bladder meridian in the calf sometimes. If it's really dense, I'll needle along that and try to make it softer. And I get instantaneous results. Gallbladder meridian as well, especially in people that have like a really tight uh, peroneus. We're going to find some density there that if we can loosen it up, it's going to make that, that letter H have a lot more ability to bend sideways. I call this the hula hoop system. <laughs> so when patients say, what are you doing? I say, oh, we're fixing your hula hoop control system. Love it. So that, di- yeah, the daimai and the gallbladder meridian, that's our hula hoop control system you know, with the kidney meridian on the inside. And so, yeah, we want to be able to move that hula hoop in every different range and control it. And you want to have a strong center to it as well. Right. And see, that's why people get piriformis syndrome. It's so obvious if you think about it that way. And, you know, more than half of our patients complaining of sciatic neuralgia have a compression of the piriformis and glute medius on the sciatic nerve. They may not, or they may have pathology north of that, you know, but just ignoring the lumbar pathology, gallbladder 30 and 29 become tight as the system is trying to stabilize itself in the face of weakness. So you tonify that weakness and the system can relax a little. Right. So as we strengthen the Dantian, as we strengthen the vessel, the container that the pelvis is, and we free up the kidney meridian a little bit, improve the flow in the kidney meridian, then the gallbladder 2930 complex can settle down. It doesn't have to be called in to stabilize the system. It's already working overtime. Yeah. Now, there's a whole nother level of problems that I haven't talked about yet, which is, you know, lumbar pathology. and Somebody said, everybody over the age of 50 has arthritis. Okay. So, and probably everybody over the age of 50 has some amount of degeneration of intervertebral discs in the lumbar spine. And those of us who spend our day standing at acupuncture tables are (laughs) right, right there among them. So when the patient comes in with their MRI interpretation, I'm very interested to see what the radiologist said. You know, am I dealing with lateral foraminal stenosis? Am I dealing with facet arthropathy? Am I dealing with central canal stenosis? And do I have disc herniations? So in my experience, disc herniations, they normally will get better on their own if they're treated conservatively. And I think this is the opinion in the chiropractic community. But... Central canal stenosis is a a condition that just gets worse. It's a rigidification of the connective tissue that wraps the cauda equina in the lumbar spine. And it narrows and squeezes those nerves before they even get outside the center of the spine. So that's a pretty hard pathology to have in the mix. But lateral foraminal stenosis where the the disc has degenerated to the point where that opening between the upper and lower vertebrae is closing down. Now that little hole getting smaller and smaller 
and also being filled with osteophytes and inflammation, that nerve root irritation is very provocative to the body. I mean, not only is it just an irritation of the nerve, but the, the, but the lumbar spine and the musculature there is going to go into a guarding pattern to try to protect that. And then the worst pathology, perhaps, is the facet joint arthropathy, which will project pain to the surface right over the top of it. And that pain is going to show up and rigidification in the erector spinae. So those sciatic nerve roots coming out from the lumbar spine can, can be getting irritated by an awful lot of bony pathology and then muscular tension where the lumbar paraspinals are just rigidifying the system to try to protect it. So the lumbar spine is just going to go into a more rigidified state to try to keep anything bad from happening. And, you know, that's nature's way of working. So, you know, how much can we change that in those patients is a big question of mine. Well, it raises a question for me too. If you have an area of the body you were talking about, the uh, lateral nerve roots coming out, and if if there's some problems there and the body rigidifies around it to try to stabilize it and protect it, loosening that area up, our attempt to loosen it, would that actually be helpful? That might actually, that might actually make it worse in some ways or open them up to, to deeper injuries. That's exactly right. And that's why for those patients with really severe pathology in the lumbar spine bones, when you do strong local needling, you really risk exacerbating that. And I was taught by one teacher who had me use a 30-gauge 75-millimeter serin or 60-millimeter serin at the Watteau points, needling all the way down to touch the transverse process. And yeah, you can get in there and work on those erector spinae and Maybe you can even needle into the multifidi and rotatories, but I don't know what I'm doing. If I mechanically disrupt trigger points in the erector spinae, am I making that lumbar more unguarded in a way that's going to increase pathology? I don't know. And I've had two or three cases where after that kind of aggressive needling, people got much more unstable. And so we cannot aggressively needle these, these very pathologic low backs unless a lot of other things are in place that help the Dantian be more of a stronger vessel, right? So this is where yoga is so critical for improving foot strike, for improving foot mechanics, and for improving just the whole health of the the bladder meridian. And I'm not talking about this big hot yoga with a lot of flow. I'm talking about concerted, very carefully done Iyengar with lots of adaptations for these older patients. We've got to strengthen the Dantian before we get in there with big fat long needles and try to break things apart. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a classic example of deficiency leading to excess. Right. Exactly. And it makes sense because if there's deficiency, the, the, most exter the most exterior layers of the system are going to become more rigidified because, again, the whole purpose of this thing is to protect the Dantian. 
And the container is, become, is going to become more and more rigid to protect the Dantian. And we have to respect that. And so, you know, there are a lot of teachers who are going to say, in those cases, we're going to use a lot of moxa on governing vessel points and, you know, moxa on GV4. And I've done a fair amount of OQ in the past. I don't always do it now, but, or even, you know, the Korean moxa box on the, on the backside and the belly both for strengthening the container. It's just those ancillary therapies become so important and probably herbs as well. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, I'm looking at the time and I can't believe that an hour has gone by already. Time flies when you I can keep fun. talking. Yeah, I know, I could, but, but I like to, such an interesting subject. It is. I, well, we just may have to bring you back for a part two at some point. Um, cause I do try to keep these to an hour or any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners before we wind this thing down today? Well, I'd say that I think everybody can benefit from doing more palpation of the musculature of the low back and the hips and the belly and just beginning to make some record in the chart, some graphic reflection of the findings and repeating that week after week after week so we can see how these cases evolve that's a really important source of objective information much more important than pulse and tongue in my opinion so um, that's i think where most of us can really increase our uh, ability to do a good job yeah that and writing it down is so helpful because i find if I write stuff down, I start to actually build up a vocabulary for making sense of what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. It's really helpful. Even if I don't necessarily understand it, sometimes I'll feel things and I'll go, I'm feeling this. What does it mean? I don't know what it means, but I know I'm feeling this. Well, and I love doing it in pictures. I love making a sketch mm -hmm. because it's quicker <laughs> than a narrative too. Yeah. Great. Well, Laura, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much.